Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. June on the West Coast this year has been cool and wet, but I'm not complaining. And that's because I'd rather have the rain than the spiking, soaring heat that millions suffered through last year. And I should know, because I was part of it. It was a shock to all of us, and it was fatal to some. With the growing likelihood that a dome of heat will descend on the region again because of climate change, the challenge is on to find ways to save lives of creatures great and small. That desire to ensure a livable future for everyone is also what drives photographer and artist Edward Bertinsky's work. He spent a lifetime sharing images with the world, revealing the ways industry is altering the landscape and the climate, sounding the alarm for the planet. Also, the people of Finland don't seem quick to boast, but they've set themselves a world-beating goal, go carbon negative in less than two decades. That's right, suck in more emissions than you spew out. Over to you, rest of the developed world. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. There's been a lot of coverage in the last little while about the anniversary of the deadly heat dome in the West last year. Much of the focus was on the hundreds who died in their homes and how that tragedy can be prevented next time. But for the last year, scientists have been quietly studying another staggering death toll. Roughly one billion sea creatures baked to death up and down the west coast of B.C. and Washington state. News of that got me out of the studio. It's a warm spring day, low tide at one of Vancouver's most popular beaches. On this morning, though, there are only a few people out exploring the shore, crunching through the seashells underfoot. Across Burrard Inlet, the coastal mountains soar above the cityscape, snow still clinging to the peaks. A picture-perfect scene. Now, who would bring a microphone down to the beach? (laughs) Well, I mean, you must bring odd tools down here too, right? You just didn't bring them today. (laughs) I have a quadrat in my pocket, just Uh, in case I need it. Okay. Hi, I'm Laura. I'm Chris. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Nice to meet you too. Chris is Chris Harley, a professor at the University of British Columbia who studies marine ecology. And he's carrying a quadrat in case you missed that. A quadrat, as I learned is a plastic frame that's used to help count the number of sea creatures in any given spot. He asked me to meet him here for a reason. He starts by taking out his phone to shoot a picture of the scene. Since the spring, uh, back in April when things looked really bad, it is actually starting to look a little bit better than that. And there's some more seaweeds coming in on the tops of these rocks. Uh, So, That's good. I think the cool spring may really have been useful. We 
are standing in a boulder field at low tide looking out across um, uh, uh, English Bay towards downtown Vancouver. And the rocks here are covered with a, a multitude of life. There's barnacles and mussels and snails and seaweeds and crabs hiding in the cracks. And uh, especially for an urban marine environment, this one is a, a very diverse one. There's almost no breeze today, but there's that familiar briny, salty tang in the air, the smell of the sea. Almost a year ago, Harley watched as the heat dome descended on the beaches here and changed all of that. He vividly remembers the second day when temperatures were soaring way above normal. I could smell the beach before I got to it, and that is never a good sign. Uh, That was an indication that a lot of things had already died. If you've smelled the unpleasant low tide smell, just multiply that by a hundred. It's, you know, it's rotting seafood. It's, it's, you know, if something's gone bad in your fridge, I'm worried that that is the smell of the future as we will get the rotting seafood smell and then we will get the wildfire smoke smell. And uh, that will be not quite as fun as the wildflower smell and the ocean breeze smell that we're more used to. Recognizing that things were not good, Um, I went into sort of emergency data collection mode to try to document as much as I could before, you know, the waves washed away all the evidence of of the crime, so to speak, and went out with a student on the Monday, which was the hottest day, and it was so hot, we were worried about our own safety. We would work for 45 minutes and then retreat to the shade and eat frozen grapes and drink water uh, just to, you know, protect ourselves. And it was depressing. Like, everywhere we walked, it was just more and more dead mussels and dead sea stars and dead crabs. And, and over the subsequent days, I visited more and more sites, and it was more and more depressing. It's like, oh, shoot, the first sites that I went to weren't the worst. There were places that were way worse off than that. And recognizing the full scope of that event was very sobering. The scientist in Harley kept going, even as the scenes of devastation kept getting worse. And those were some of the places where it was just staggering how many dead mussels there were. And and over the course of the summer, those shells were washing in on the beaches and they just looked like snowdrifts. It it was something I'd never seen before. And yet there were other places that fared better. Where were those and why did they do better? Yeah, the the places on the outer coast uh, did better. And that's partly because those areas are wavy. You know, the, the next stop is Japan if you start swimming from, say, uh, the west coast of Vancouver Island. Uh, the tides are earlier in the morning there, so the shoreline didn't get quite as hot when the tide was low. And the water is colder. So it's, it's as if you were trying to, you know, cook frozen peas versus fresh peas. It takes longer to cook the frozen peas. The shorelines that, as the, where the, that had been underwater that, was colder, it takes them longer to heat up. And so there were a few advantages that the outer coast had over places closer to Vancouver. And were those places touched at all by the heat? They were. You could find the the sort of like the worst case scenario rock that faced directly towards where the sun would have been at the hottest part of the day. You can find dead barnacles and mussels in those areas. But that was just a really small fraction of the total habitat out on the outer coast, whereas a much more substantial fraction of the available habitat became lethal uh, in the more protected areas in the Salish Sea. Harley has regularly visited this spot over the course of the last year to monitor the recovery he's hoping to see. And among other things, there are striking differences between two sides of the same boulders in this field. 
In a normal year, there would be a lot more seaweed and a lot more mussels, and you can still sort of really tell that that part of the ecosystem is missing. There are bits of that here and there, particularly on the north sides of the rocks where things didn't get quite as hot, but standing where we are and looking towards the north, every surface facing us was also facing the sun during the heat dome, and that's where the death and destruction was the most intense. And you can still see this almost scarred look to the landscape, which used to be covered in much more and is now a lot of bare rock and, and very young barnacles that are just starting to reestablish. So what's the culprit? It got way too hot. We had an event that even the meteorologists were stunned by. And one way to assess how rare something is, is to uh, sort of uh, make a graph of, well, how hot did it get? And then how frequently do you see those types of event? And this one was so hot, it doesn't even fit onto that graph. There's, there's no way to assess how common that that should be. And that actually worries me a lot because that means that the climate might be playing by different rules now than it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago. So this type of event might have been a once in a 150 year event, once in a 10,000 year event. We don't really know, but by the end of the century, it might be a once in every five year event. And that's really going to change the way that ecosystems look in this province. Tell me about what that would look like. On land, the, the uh, agriculture is going to have to change. Uh, it's, you just can't grow the same crops if you have that sort of extreme heat. Wildfires are going to become more frequent, and the types of forests we have now won't be the forests of the future. We're going to have forests that look more like places that are drier and further south. Um, on the shoreline, we're going to, I'm tempted to say we're going to look more like Southern California, but that's not even true because that would require Southern California species to be able to migrate up to British Columbia and live here. Uh, the species that are coming in that are warm adapted are actually arriving accidentally from places like East Asia. And so we're seeing more of these non-native oysters, for example, and non-native snails. And so our ecosystem's going to look like this really weird stew of a few things that we've had for millennia and a few things that arrived uh, in the past few decades. Let me play devil's advocate and ask you, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I don't know. It depends on what you care about, right? So if you want to see the things or do the things or harvest the foods that you are, are used to um, or that you found you know very culturally important to do with your grandparents when you were young your grandchildren aren't going to have that same opportunity and that has some important value to people but there are also going to be changes in the way that the ecosystem functions and it's, it's doing stuff for us all the time that we don't always think about or appreciate, but it's, it's filtering the water, um, it's providing recreational opportunities, it's feeding you know, uh, birds, it's providing you know, safe migration corridors for salmon. Uh, and as those functions start to change, we may hit tipping points that we haven't even thought about yet. It's like, well, shoot, now we just no longer see those birds in the system because they don't have enough to eat. Or, oh, why did water clarity change so much? Or why do we have more harmful algal blooms? There's all sorts of little changes that, that we won't like, but will likely happen at some point, And we don't necessarily know what they all are.
So you decided not only to just take pictures, you needed to study this. What did you embark on studying? What questions were you trying to answer? We're looking at a lot of questions that apply to systems beyond just a boulder field at low tide in Vancouver. We want to understand how important is it to have a, a period of recovery after this sort of stress event? Because maybe given enough time, well, presumably given enough time, the system will recover. But if you get the next catastrophe before that happens, that's like getting a sunburn on skin that's already damaged from a sunburn last week. And that uh, is much more hazardous to human health and also you know, to an ecosystem. So understanding those double whammies Understanding um, as waters become more acidic, the ability for animals to tolerate high temperature is changing, but we don't know by how much. So there might be stress events that don't seem like they would be that bad, but because other parts of the environment have also changed, they're more lethal. So we're just trying to put ourselves in a position to understand how often we're going to see these events and what the impacts are going to look like. And that, Harley says, should lead him and other scientists towards solutions, toward what will survive even as the climate changes. There were certain places that did better and certain species that did better. And so there's, you know, small causes for optimism. It's like, okay, well, you know, the outer coast was okay, or some of the beaches um, that were a little shadier, you know, did a little bit better. Uh, And, you know, so certain clam species did better than others. And that gives us something that's actionable. It's like, well, all right, where should we put marine protected areas? Well, how about we put them in areas that are likely not to bake to death in the next 10 years? Because that defeats the purpose of protecting the spot. You know, what species should we uh, focus our aquaculture efforts on or wild harvest efforts on? It's like, well, maybe we need to protect some of these more sensitive ones and focus more on harvesting ones that are uh, robust in the face of these, you know, big heat events. Uh, So I think there's a lot of opportunity to change the way we do things in ways that will benefit what we get from marine environments, but also how sustainable uh, all of that is. How quickly does it need to happen? Oh, it's it's like planting a tree. The best time was 20 years ago, and the second best time is now. And I think, I, I never root for catastrophes, for environmental catastrophes, but when they happen, I hope that they serve as, you know, an extra nudge towards changing the way we are approaching managing natural systems or protecting natural systems or even you know growing our food or or, or, you know catching fish and so this was a big wake-up call for British Columbia and thinking about you know what can we do better and it's, it's hard when there's a global problem like global warming, which makes these types of, of extreme heat waves more common. That requires massive international cooperation. But there's also small things that we can do at local scales that are much more manageable. And, and we know that just very simple conservation efforts that keep species diversity higher, uh, where species diversity is higher, the effects of heat waves are lower. So, you know, can we solve global climate change in the next 10 years? No, I mean, we should be trying, but can we take some conservation management steps in the next 10 years? Uh, Easily, we could do that in 12 months if there's political will to do so. Now you heard Chris mention marine protected areas, and they are pretty much as they sound, waters where human activity is limited to different degrees in order to preserve and protect species and species diversity. 
Here's his definition of the best kind of preserved marine area. So some of the best marine protected areas are, are prisons uh, and military installations where people just aren't allowed to, to come in. And you find sometimes higher diversity in those areas as a result of that protection. Uh, the demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea is really biologically rich because nobody goes there. <laughs> wow. um, that won't happen in Canada. But Chris Harley does want to see more protected areas quickly, even if there is some access by the public. Ottawa has promised to protect 30% of Canada's lands and ocean by 2030. About 14% of marine areas are in ocean reserves now. But critics point out the existing marine areas aren't protected well enough against a plethora of potential hazards, like oil and gas, mining, trawling, and dumping into the ocean. So marine reserves are one potential savior. Listen closely, because here comes another. And what about limpets? <laughs> the hidden superstars here. Tell me about the study that used, that used limpets and what they are, because people may not know. I'm trying to think if anyone has ever said to me, what about limpets? <laughs> uh, we're, we're a special show. <laughs> limpets are <laughs> a really unglorious and underappreciated type of snail. You know, when you think of snails, the reason snails are cool is because their shells are spirals and they're pretty. Limpets do not have spiral shells. They just look like a little cone or a little lump or a little kneecap. There's actually a whole group of them that are named after kneecaps. And uh, despite not being the most glorious of animals, they are really important because of what they do. And, and that is graze down um, all of the weedy seaweeds. So if you lose the grazers on the shore, like the limpets and, and some of the other little snails that eat seaweeds, you get these blooms of, uh, well, I'm sitting on some right now, this green seaweed, which can really take over a shoreline. And when that happens, it smothers out other things. And, you know, we start to lose the barnacles and then that habitat is gone and we don't get, you know, a lot of the little, little uh, um, crustaceans and other animals. The limpets though, stop that process. They're like the little heroes because they are the cleanup crew. They let the barnacles and mussels do really well. Barnacles and mussels then provide habitat for all of the little worms and hermit crabs and, and uh, you know, wee little crustaceans. And uh, a, a, a former student of mine named Becca Cordes really nicely showed this where she did an experiment with and without the limpets and then simulated heat waves on, on, on half of those little, little plots. And where the limpets were around and maintaining that sort of local diversity, those little miniature ecosystems did much better when it got hot. And where the limpets were absent and diversity had gone down, those little systems did much worse. Okay, so is there an answer in, in stocking up on limpets? More, more limpets! Uh, um, the, it's, it's one of those sort of ecosystem balances where having the amount that, you know, we've had in the past few decades um, is probably about the appropriate amount because that's what the system has evolved with. So adding more may not necessarily help, but maintaining what we've had or what, you know, we've recently had, I think is useful because, uh, you know, there's been a long evolutionary history on this coast for all of this stuff, and lots of these plants and animals rely on one another. And without the barnacles, you wouldn't have habitats for, you know, the, the little baby mussels, and then without the mussels, you wouldn't have the habitats for some of the worms, and then the worms do other things. Um, 
and because all of that interlocks so neatly, um, you have to be careful. It, it, it's sort of like an, an airplane where if you start pulling out rivets, you know, losing the first one or the second one may not be important, but eventually you lose a wing and then you're in real trouble. And, and so uh, you can think of species in that way of they're doing something and it may not be super obvious, but if you start to lose enough things, then the function really changes dramatically and it's not necessarily going to be in ways that we like. Two solutions based in science that may help preserve and prolong species. But when the heat hit a year ago, Chris Harley also discovered just how much non-scientists were paying attention and how much they cared about all those sea creatures. I got a lot of emails from a lot of people uh, with just observations and, oh, we smelled the stench of death up on the central coast of British Columbia, or, oh, we noticed this down in Washington. But the most touching email I got was from a man in California who works at a, a fabric company, and he offered to provide for free 5,000 lineal yards of fabric if he thought that we could use it, or if we thought that we could use it to create like emergency pop-up tents to shade the shore the next time the weather forecast called for a big heat wave. And, well, first of all, that was an incredibly generous offer. Second of all, that actually would work just at a very local scale. Like if we wanted to protect this boulder field and had an army of volunteers willing to, you know, put up fabric shades, um, that works. We've done that experimentally for that exact reason. It's not practical at larger scales, though. The shoreline of the Salish Sea, so the inland bodies of water in, in British Columbia and Washington, is 7,500 kilometers. And there's just not enough cloth and not enough people to protect that much shoreline. So I appreciated the offer. And if there was a very particular beach that people cared about deeply, you know, say this is the last place an endangered species lived, or this is a really important shellfish lease for a First Nation who doesn't have extensive shoreline, you know, those types of mitigation efforts might be worth considering. But at the very broad scale, uh, we need to start thinking about solutions uh, that are, you know, fixing the problem rather than trying to just address the, the immediate symptoms. Understood, but what does an offer like that tell you? That email gave me a lot of reason for hope, actually. Not because it would necessarily fix the problem, but because, first of all, people cared enough to reach out with a suggestion, and second of all, people are thinking creatively. And I think we're going to need a lot of creative thinking because the way we've been um, operating up until now is probably not going to cut it if we start seeing this type of extreme heat uh, or even milder events into the future. We're just, you know, the, the ecosystems are constantly changing and we need to adapt. And having people present new ideas like, well, what if we tried this? Or what if we managed it this way? Or, you know, what if we um, thought about, uh, you know, introducing... Um, some some trees from further south that are locally adapted and will survive current conditions. You know, all these things should be on the table for discussion. That feeling of hope is important for Chris Harley as he reflects on what happened last summer and how he reacted to it. There have only been two times when 
I had an, what I would say is an unexpectedly strong emotional reaction to my research. Um, the first was when sea star wasting disease broke out and all my little sea star friends, who I never considered myself very close with on a personal level, but watching them melt before your eyes was very sad and you get a little bit choked up when you see it happening on beach after beach. And the heat dome did the same thing. It was. You know, it's like almost you're, you're afraid to get out of your car when you arrive at the next place you're going to sample because you can already smell the shore and you're afraid of what you're going to find. And it's, it's a little bit hard to disentangle the science from that emotional impact. And I know a lot of people were feeling that. That was very clear in, in talking to people that were, you know, traumatized by what they were seeing on their favorite shoreline. Uh, but because we care enough to be affected, again, that's a reason for hope. It's, we haven't given up on our natural environments. We do care about them. And recognizing both that we care about them and that they're under threat and that there are things that we can do, um, that combination is hopefully a powerful agent for change. Christopher Harley, thank you so much for your time. It has been a pleasure. You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. A serene image of an old-growth forest on Vancouver Island, moss seemingly dripping from tree branches. This is from a new film from renowned photographer and artist Edward Bertinsky called In the Wake of Progress. As the images shift and change, so too does the music, the dissonant notes reflecting jarring scenes of damage and destruction wrought by industry. Bertinsky decided to mount the show on giant screens in downtown Toronto's Dundas Square, guaranteeing thousands and thousands of people will see it and hear it. I visited Bertinsky in his offices in Toronto to talk about the film and his lifelong mission to raise awareness about climate change through his work. What are you trying to achieve with this show? You know, I like to see art get out of the gallery setting and into the public square. And there's no bigger public square than Dundas Square, uh, the center of commerce. And so when I started thinking about, well, what would I do with that? And I thought, well, maybe if I kind of brought the square back to its original form, which was a forest. All of southern Ontario was a forest. And then I said, I'm going to bring it back to the grove. So I took all the screens and turned them into a forest. And actually, um, since we don't have ancient forests uh, here in Ontario, I had to go all the way to Vancouver Island to get some. So I brought Vancouver to the square. 
And it opens up with that. And then the, the whole procedure, things that I've photographed over the last 40 years, everything from deforestation to agriculture to mining, quarrying, um, and then manufacturing, waste streams, uh, and then back to nature. So I, I created this arc using my work uh, over the last 40 years and put it to music. And I, I'm really excited about the fact that some people will come because they've heard about it and to see it. But there's going to be a whole lot of people who are just going into Nordstrom to buy a pair of pants for their kids or something. Um, and they're going to be walking out and all of a sudden they're going to be caught in this moment. Um, and, and that's kind of exciting too, that all of a sudden they're in this art experience uh, that was unintended, that they never expected to be at. What are you hoping people take away from it? Well, I think... It, the the piece that I think is meant, especially with the music and uh, that Phil Strong and 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 the, and the production of you know the music as well. Um, Bob Ezrin was producer on the piece as well, and and I think with all the kind of thinking uh, about what we wanted uh, the um, public to experience is that you actually begin to feel that there is a consequence to what we do that that we're. You know, we live in a capitalist, consumer-based society, but there is a price being paid somewhere in the world that all these things come from somewhere. So the towers that are around us, you know, have come from quarries or sand pits and and limestone quarries to create the cement and all of these other things that that uh, are necessary for our our, our um, urban existence. And this is like a feedback loop. And and so if you know, the person standing there with their shopping bag may kind of reflect on, do I really need this? Or is this really, um, you know, or, or maybe gets a better understanding that there is another side to life in the city and shopping and all of that, that there is another world that uh, exists. That is our world too. And it often looks surreal. It often, um, you know, looks like it's from another alien planet, but it isn't. It's it's our world. It's the alternative, the other side, the yin to the yang of living in the city. This is the latest in a long line of projects that you've done that seek to raise awareness about what's going on on our planet and perhaps in that way try to raise people's aspirations to make it a better place. And I'm wondering where that comes from in you, why you've chosen this way to approach your work? Well, I think, um, you know, there there are different ways, and I think there's, and I don't say any of them are right or wrong, and, they, and, and all of them have effect. But, you know, there is the kind of um, baseball bat over the head effect, you know, calling out the bad guys. You know, think of it, you know, Michael Moore films, you know, that, so that, you know, he's going to go and chase down the bad guys and make them look bad. Um, and... And that's one way to kind of bring attention to problems. But by um, allowing you to kind of um, experience all of these things and not being told how you're supposed to react to it or what you should take away from it, that if you, you know, synthesize what you've just seen and feel that there's an issue here, we believe that there's a greater likelihood of you owning it, that, that you, you, you then start to absorb it in a different way. You know, here's something that you experience, you feel it, you walk away and maybe feel a little sad or you might feel angry or you might feel something, but you're going to feel something. And, and, and that, I think, has a greater uh, chance to 
um, translate into behavioral change. And I think that's what we're looking at today. We need to move away from rhetoric and move away from just talking about the problem because we're now in it. We now have to start acting. Each and every one of us has to start doing what we can uh, and you know, asking you know the corporations that we buy things from, or or buy services from, or you know governments that we elect uh, through the electorate, we need to ask them to actually also you know take it seriously that this is a a situation that is dire and we're in it and and it isn't like it's happening tomorrow; it's happening now. And you don't have to look any further than BC last summer to understand the the danger we're in. Do you feel, though, that after all this time that you've made a dent in it, that you've had success in doing what you've been trying to do? Well, I mean, audiences do respond. Uh, For me, I'm always encouraged when, you know, I I, I do a talk and then afterwards, you know, a a student will come to me and said, you know, I, I was going down this path and and I saw your work and I saw one of your films or whatever. And now I'm gone into environmental studies or now I'm, you know, I just wrote, wrote a dissertation and I'm now interested in, in, in biology and, and, and how, what we can do to lessen our impact. And, you know, so I think, you know, uh, those kinds of things are very important, you know, that, that the, the next generation, um, you know, gets on with the project and understands it and absorbs it in a way. Um, and, and I think it's much harder, you know, for, for older people and, you know, the baby boomers. I mean, you know, I think if you're going to spend time trying to, um, you know, work on change, I think it's better in the youth than it is changing behavior of somebody who's in their 60s or 70s. It's very hard. I mean, they're they're kind of baked in, so to speak. But the youth is there and they need to become the foot soldiers. But also, the, a great danger is to expect the youth to fix it and us not to work on it today, because you can't fix it once it's kind of once the milk is spilt in the carpet. You're not going to get it out of the carpet very easily, and and uh, and so you know all that CO2 is milk in the carpet. You know we can't. It's going to be harder to get it back out, and if we're changing the ocean temperatures and acidification, and we're losing you know the coral reefs, we don't have anything in our toolkit that's going to help us there. Uh, I watched an interview you did with George Strombolopoulos 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more. And in that you said um, that uh, photographers, artists um, were in a good position because they could pretty much say or show what they wanted, but they didn't have any power to try to change things. And I wonder if if you think that's evolved, whether you, you think you do have more power, not political, but in other ways. Well, I think it's soft power. I think um, you know. <clears throat> I think what artists can do is is synthesize bigger problems, find ways to manifest the idea, and uh, whether it's through film or stills, uh, you know, uh, you know, the spoken word, music. But we can manifest that and kind of storytell it. That 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 we can bring it into a, a format that you know can be understood and uh, and felt like when i was you know 12 13 14 high school smoking was cool and it had no consequences there was no cancer associated with it so everybody all my friends smoked we all thought that was kind of like this is a rite of passage 
And, um, you know, and then the Surgeon General comes out and says, hey, this causes cancer. And then there's a lot of science, you know, b- you know bogus science that was saying, nah, nah, it's not true, which is the same thing with climate change. That is a real interesting example of something that was acceptable. And then, you know, through over time and, and raising consciousness around the dangers of that, it goes away. And so climate change isn't that different. I wonder if you ever get discouraged or, or angry when you when you see the lack of progress that you would like to be seeing. I, I'm saying progress different from the progress you're highlighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I do get frustrated because I don't know. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll be fully honest with you. I was very disappointed with what happened in Ontario. Um, you mean the election? The election, yeah. I mean, first off, with uh, electorate turnout, I mean, it was like 45% or something like that. And, you know, whereas you just <clears throat> just go look over at the war in Ukraine and how they're dying to be able to have the freedom to elect their own politicians and to have their self-determination. And here, we're being lackadaisical and saying, ah, it's not my problem. And and, and then, you know, uh, you know, you know, whatever you want to say about Doug Ford, when he came in, he literally destroyed every green initiative that was happening, you know, in the province, all the incentives. And, you know, and the green belt was a target to 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 develop and put into more suburbs. The last thing we need is more suburbs. And the last thing we need is big super highways going through conservation areas. And so, you know, with with this kind of an overwhelming majority, I, I, I suspect that's going ahead. So I don't know what people are thinking. I don't know why everybody thinks this is just okay that we can just carry on this way. And that the and I hope I sincerely hope that that he does come up with a green agenda and the conservatives understand that they now have power and if they want to you know use that power properly that they have to come to the table with something that that is going to be you know bringing us closer to the kinds of goals we're meeting because if we here in the free world and the nice Canadians can't get it right. Um, and can't be the examples for the world, who is? Our show focuses on um, climate solutions. And I'm wondering how you see what you do as a solution. Well, it's, and I've often had long conversations with my colleagues, and what we think that our films do is, is and, our, and my work does, is to broaden the tent. That maybe, you know, you know, yes, you're speaking to the choir, those who believe there's a problem, and this reinforces and helps them kind of digest and, and feel the need and continue, you know, the aspirations to solve the problem and, and the persistence in trying to solve the problem against a lot of odds. So, so I think that, that work we do helps kind of those in that, in, in, that are in the choir, so to speak. But there are those that will never join the choir because they're, they're just, forget it. You know, like, I, I like it the way it is. I have interests in this area. I'm not changing my mind no matter what. And then there are, there's this group, I think, in between that could be convinced that there's a problem, but they're still not fully in or there's not. And I think, you know, films and, you know, images and books and, and now this public art thing helps maybe move some of those. Maybe I'm not interested or maybe it's not important enough for me to pay attention in, under the tent. 
And, and so as, as artists, it's, it's shaping consciousness. It's what we do. And that's the soft power we have, is that we can put ideas in your head that hopefully uh, you know, are, are tacking towards the truth. So, so I think the way we're bringing the messaging out is, is, is subtle. It's not you know, um, you know, being shouted at. Or, or being dogmatic, or being fully opinionated, and saying, you know, this is these guys are wrong, and I think it's in that in that space that we may be able to encourage people to really take another look at the world around them. We were talking earlier before I started rolling about um, hope and the importance you you find in hope, and in this new film, you begin with these beautiful images of a verdant forest on Vancouver Island, and then you go through what is clearly the destruction wrought by industry, the quote-unquote progress the world is seeing. And then you come back to the verdant forest at the end and the sounds of nature. Is that because you're trying to give people hope? Yeah, absolutely, because I think, I mean, there, there is an anxiety happening in the youth today uh, and this kind of almost giving up. And the last thing we want is, is people to give up. I mean, and that, and then that you know, that's a certain kind of nihilism, and a cynicism that any you know any of my efforts are are, are wasted. So why why bother? And that is not, I think, um, the message that or or the place that 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 we want the youth or anybody to end up at. So as long as there is a chance, as long as there are still opportunities to you know stave off the worst. Then, there, then, then we need to. And the fact that these forests, that biodiversity, is still with us. We haven't shredded all of it. There's still, you know, large tracts of it available. And if we just leave it alone, then it will regenerate. It will continue to grow and 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 and, and prosper. We just need to understand that we we can't keep adding to the problem because nature it's just that it's going to correct us off the planet you know and uh and that's not what we want that's not the outcome that anybody who cares about the next generation in life and consciousness which is to me a miracle of every day the fact that i wake up and i'm a conscious human being is not to be uh uh you know underestimated as something very miraculous edward bertinsky thank you thank you if you want to read a bit more about my interview with Edward Bertinsky and see some of the amazing images from his film, just head over to cbc.ca slash radio slash what on earth. And you can actually hear more of Edward Bertinsky on Tuesday on Q. He sits down for a feature length interview with Tom Power. Zero is a term you might be familiar with by now. It means a region's greenhouse gas emissions are roughly equal to what it stores. And as more and more countries get serious about climate change, it's become a bit of a mantra. Here at home, Ottawa has pledged to hit net zero by 2050, and that pledge has been enshrined in legislation. But over in Finland, lawmakers have a more ambitious goal, net zero 
by 2035. And they're not stopping there. The Nordic nation recently announced it wants to go carbon negative, and it wants to do that by 2040. Kati Kulavesi is the director of the Centre for Climate Change, Energy and Environmental Law at the University of Eastern Finland. Hi, Kati. Hi. First of all, can you just tell me what does carbon negative actually mean? Because I hadn't heard the phrase before now. Yes, so it means that uh, Finland is actually going to be, or the goal is to remove more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere uh, than uh the em- than emitting. So it means that essentially that the carbon sink, which in the case of Finland is uh, likely to be the forest sector, uh, is going to be larger than the remaining greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, how, is, how is Finland's new target different from what was in place before? So the previous target was um, to reduce emissions um, by at least 80% by 2050. And uh, there was no carbon neutrality target. Uh, so in this case, um, carbon neutrality is going to be, so the emission reductions, 80% emission reduction now has to be achieved by 2040. So that uh, ambition level was, was increased um, by 10 years. And then there is also a new component to the target that uh, Finland also needs, to, in addition to remove uh, re- reducing emissions, Finland needs to also increase its carbon sink. Uh, these we we know about targets. We we in Canada, the government has set a number of targets and then failed to meet them time and time again. The targets that Finland has put in place have have been written into legislation. What what does that do? Well, I think the most. Uh, important thing is that they will now bind on all subsequent governments. So I guess one of the the challenges in climate policy has been that uh, there has not been enough, um, like a stable enough long-term perspective. And they also need to report to the parliament every year on progress made. And there is also an obligation for all civil servants to make sure that the legislation is being implemented. What are the different ways then that Finland plans to reach carbon negativity? What are the paths? Well, Finland, like Canada, has a very important uh, land use sector and a large uh, forest carbon sink. So, of course, one of the key measures is to enhance and strengthen the forest carbon sink. If you look at the cost of uh, reducing emissions somewhere else, or if you co- look at the cost of technological things, definitely that's the most cost-effective and cheap. That's the, essentially the cheapest option. Um, of course, there are also other ways. So uh, detailed policies and measures have not been uh, decided. And of course, the forest industry has been traditionally very strong and uh, politically influential in Finland as well. So it is possible that the government... Uh, decide eventually to do something else. But uh, clearly all the scientific analysis, for example, by the Finnish climate change panel shows that uh, the most effective way to reach carbon neutrality first and carbon negativity thereafter is to uh, enhance the forest carbon sink. Understanding that there are still details to be worked out, I'm wondering if you have a sense of where you think the new Climate Change Act falls short. 
Well, I think that it could have definitely been stronger in terms of, well, speaking as a lawyer, it could have been stronger in terms of uh, clear powers for the courts to review its implementation and a clear provision uh, for, for example, uh, non-governmental organizations and other actors to uh, question the government's climate plans and policies and measures. It could have also given a stronger mandate to the Finnish Climate Change Panel uh, to analyze whether the government is doing enough to implement the act and provide recommendations. But I think otherwise it is a reasonably good framework. And as I said, it's a model where the targets and sort of a planning and governance system is created by the new Climate Change Act. But then the detailed policies and measures have to be included in other pieces of legislation. So I think that the most work, homework that the government will have to do really relates to the detailed climate policies and, and policies and measures to reduce emissions and enhance the carbon sink. And we already talked about, about the mechanics of this in the panel and its recommendations. But I wonder if there's something about the Finnish character that that makes it um, possible for it to want to go this far, to be so ambitious compared to other developed countries in the world? The initiative to enshrine the new 2035 carbon neutrality target in law uh, actually was very strongly influenced by the uh, work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So in 2018, there was a very strong reaction in Finland and in, amongst the public to the IPCC's 1.5 degrees special report. Um, and this basically um, led to a situation where all major political parties, so eight out of nine major political parties, agreed on common climate change targets. And climate change also played a very strong role in the election. So that shows that uh, there is very strong concern uh, and climate change is a very important issue for them. Finnish uh, public. Of course, hanging over all of this, something much more recent, and that is Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Russia cutting off gas and electricity supplies to Finland shortly after the country announced its desire to join NATO. How does that situation play into the decision to go forward with these much more ambitious targets? Well, for the one one party, the true Finn right-wing populist party that was the only one not really supporting the carbon neutrality target. Uh, I think that uh, now for many of its members, uh, it's really sort of, we've come to realize that uh, we really cannot rely on uh, fossil fuel imports from Russia. So energy independence has much stronger political support than it used to have. So clearly now their long-term goal uh, is to be energy independent and increase uh, renewable energy and so on. But then I guess in the shorter term, uh, there are, of course, challenges on how we can uh, respond to the situation. Finland is actually, there are some some industries that have relied on uh, natural gas imports from uh, Russia, and uh, but it's not really consumed, for example, by households and, and so on. So uh, I guess that uh, in the short term, we'll have to increase our natural gas imports from other countries. But I'm, I'm wondering, Canada's made it clear it's, yeah. it's willing to fill the gaps for countries looking to get off royal, Russian oil and gas. 
Is that what you want to hear from your allies, that, that you can find new sources for oil and gas? Well, in in some ways, of course, the, in this uh, very unfortunate situation where we are, I think that it is very welcome that the sort of uh, Western countries uh, stick together and are willing to help each other. At the same time, uh, the discussion here has not so much been on how we can identify other suppliers of uh, fossil-based uh, energy. I think the discussion has more been on how to fill the gap in other ways. So I wonder at the end of the day, how likely is it that Finland's new law could influence other European countries? Well, I hope it will. Uh, the EU just last year passed a the European level climate law and, and set the target for the EU countries to be uh, climate neutral by 2050. But that's a collective target. And what is still missing is the allocation of responsibilities for each individual EU member state. So I hope that in that uh, situation, uh, the Finnish target will be a model and inspiration. And one one reason why I think it is a very good model is that, especially in the EU, we've seen that there's been the sort of speed of change in climate-related legislation, climate and energy-related legislation has been really overwhelming. So we've had a major overhaul of the key pieces of legislation completed in 2018-2019, And now the same pieces of legislation are being revised again. And the reason is that the EU's previous climate targets have not been based on science. So in that sense, even uh, various economic actors have started to realize that in some ways uh, it's better to really base the targets on scientific analysis rather than what's politically realistic, because then uh, unfortunately the climate crisis is not going away so it just means then that the policy framework is very unstable and it has to keep changing uh, so in that sense i think that uh, it could be a very attractive model for other eu countries and perhaps uh, even countries beyond the eu perhaps even canada well <laughs> i'm i'm <laughs> sure that, that that now that finland has set out its stake on this the world will be watching to see just how it goes with uh, achieving not only neutrality but negativity kati kalavesi thank you thank you very much That wraps up our program this week. If you have thoughts about anything you heard, please get in touch with us. Our email is earth at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage. And you can follow the show on Twitter at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. Thanks to the team here at What on Earth, associate producers Devin Nguyen, Daniel Piper and producer Rachel Sanders. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.